0: Six years, Valentino Rossi has called it a day racing Grand Prix motorcycles. In the eyes of the world, he was the man who made MotoGP. Simon Patterson, Valentin Harunchi, and myself, Toby Moody, we're going to be discussing number forty-six. And let's fire off quickly, Simon. What are your first thoughts? What are your standout memories? A Valentino, that you'll tell your kids. Uh, I was lucky enough to work with him,
1: obviously, in in the latter stage of his career. But the very f- one of my very first MotoGP memories uh, is something that I think we're going to touch on a little bit later in the race. That amazing race at Phillip Island in two thousand and three where he was
0: given a 10 second penalty for passing under a yellow flag just went 10 seconds quicker <laughs> Val, you're a bit of a late comer to this year a bit younger than me to say the least but what are the standout memories for you uh
2: Sepang 15 yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Awkward silence. laughs> well, well we'll touch on that we'll touch on that as this podcast progresses um yeah, for me, the, the, the style, the fun kid from the village that everyone could relate to, the speed, the celebrations, the wins, the records that came along most Sunday afternoons. It was really a magic carpet, wasn't it, of sporting history that we all enjoyed and and fun once the chequered flag fell. I was lucky enough to enjoy it from the commentary box. I commentated on all his championship victories and all then about 10 of his 115 Grand Prix victories. I was just 23 when I was in Malaysia in 1996. And when he did his first Grand Prix, I was trackside, I was there. Also when he won his last Grand Prix at Assen in 2017. Um, Yeah, for me it it was a privilege to be involved and lucky. I just think myself purely as lucky. There was no skill involved in me turning up that day in 1996 and some kid that nobody had ever heard of, and people came up to me and went, who's the girl who keeps winning the races because he had that long curly haircut that it used to fall behind his ears?
2: Val? Actually, let me revise the Sipang 15 thing, which I just left as is. The more I think about it, the defining memory I have was, you know, it's a work memory, obviously, because it was pretty early and when I started covering MotoGP, and I remember it's that press conference with Lorenzo where they honestly, we're probably not that far off throwing punches, or at the very least, we're extremely unhappy with one another. That was 2016. And the, like I, I remember just watching that and going, I, I don't believe this, having mostly focused on F1. I was like, this is entirely new. I don't remember anything like this. Obviously, these days, F1 has long overtaken that sort of thing. But at that point, that was a, a huge novelty factor of two teammates being very snarky and annoyed at each other lorenzo in his sort of very s- spoken methodical way and rossi in very much above it all jokey way it's a very nice clash of personalities it was extremely fun if also very very awkward it was it was i i Uh, As I said, I was there in that first season.
0: He was on that kind of day glow, yellow AGV, little Aprilia. And then the year after, people had twigged. He'd won a Grand Prix in in Brno 96. And people had twigged and there was a lot more sponsors on the side of the bike and the beginning of that whole Nastro Azzurro thing. What's a Nastro Azzurro? Oh, it's beer. I didn't know. When I went to Italy, I'll order one of those, please, because that's cool. Uh, still do, to a certain degree. Same as San, San Carlo Crisps, isn't it, Simon? Um, it's cool. Um, but I... He was then winning in 1997, and I went up to the uh, the Aprilia press officer, who was uh, Federica de Zotis, who is still involved in, 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 in motorcycle racing. She's doing still stuff for Honda in World Superbike, but she's a long-time press person around the paddock. And I said, you know, I you know, could could you arrange it for me to meet him? Because, you know, the, that Italian thing where they kind of keep themselves over there and his English was almost non-existent. So she introduced me on race day morning at Assen in 1997. And he we had this bizarre conversation of nobody really understanding what's going on because I didn't really speak <laughs> Italian and vice versa, him English. Um, but it came across with Federica translating that his mum would record our broadcasts Dennis Noyes and myself and Randy Mamola in English and play it back to Valentina who was still living at home of course he was only 16 17 by now and uh, and th- and then he won the race that afternoon it was the one of the great 125 races top 5 over the line in 0.8 of a second i mean it was madness the next weekend was imola what a place for a grand prix uh, early july I th- uh, and I was going through the paddock on the Thursday afternoon and Valentino came past on a scooter and he was like, oh, hello. let me introduce you to my friend who's on the back of the scooter. And it was Aldo Drudi. I can see the image now underneath that big tower that they've got at Imola. And he said, w- translating through Drudi, come to my pit box at six. So I did. And I came to this. T- and of course, you know, it's it's a little team. It's it's at the back. It's at the far end of the pit lane. And all these people started arriving, and I thought, "What's going on here?" And there were a load of flight cases in the garage because the next race was a flyaway race. I think we went to Rio or somewhere; I can't remember. And um, and of course, he turns up late. And even then, he had that presence at seventeen years old, you uh, know. And he had the long hair curled behind his ears. And um, there was a tiny little television screen that was only I don't know, ten inches. And it and it and it sort of sparked into life and on it were the last two laps of the Grand Prix the weekend before from Assen, with myself Dennis and, and Randy talking and I was like oh, okay we're gonna watch this and he crossed the line and, and he won the race and I said something like and Valentino Rossi wins the race yeah like that and they all turned around and they applauded me and I burst into tears because I was proud I was proud of it and I'll never forget that kind of those, those two weeks and that's when even everybody was beginning to realise this This kid's a, he's a bit good. And, of course, he won the championship in 97. He went into 250s the year after. Don't forget, he nearly won the first year he was in 250s. Had to look it up, but he only lost the championship by 23 points. That's less than a race uh, victory's worth of points, only to Loris Caporossi. And then, of course, he got into the 500s. Was that about when you started to watch, Simon? When did you start? Yeah. Um, my my first sort of Grand
1: Prix memories are tail end of five hundred, start of two uh, four stroke era, and and just at that point, just watching this Italian kid dominate. Uh, he was he was especially as we went into the four stroke era with that amazing V five Honda. He was just untouchable. There was just no one who could come close to Valentino Rossi any weekend, and that's why you know the I. Referenced that Phillip Island race where he got the penalty, and I think he won by five seconds at the end, even with a 10 second penalty. You know, he was 15 seconds clear. But what that showed was that every other weekend, when it was a close finish, he was toying with people because he's a showman. He wanted to be in the fight, he didn't want to clear off, but you know, the, the pace was always there, the speed was always there. Um, and I, I think at that point I kind of realised I realised obviously how special he was, how talented he was, but I also liked the fact that he liked putting on a show. And that was the era of crazy win celebrations and stupid haircuts and special liveries, which are you know basically gone now for MotoGP. He was the pioneer of all that fun stuff, and um, yeah, he, I I understand completely looking back now why he
0: hooked millions of people into the sport. Mm, mm. Oh, the, the, the hippie livery on a, on a 250 Aprilia at Mugello in 98. The Italian flag that was real day glow, Italian flag livery that he had at uh, Imola 98 on a 250. And then there was the Hawaiian blue that was on the Honda NSR 500 500. at Mugello 2001. It rained like the Bible that day. It was freezing cold. Jürgen van der Gerberg said, I nearly pulled in. I was so cold. I couldn't feel my hands. I couldn't feel the levers. Uh, Next day, ta-da! 28 degrees. Um, (laughs) uh, It was a bizarre race. Um, Yeah, he, he won at Donington in 2000. That was his first big class victory. 2001, untouchable. 11 wins from 16 races. 2002, as you say, Simon, the beginning of the of the V5, the four-stroke era. There were 16 Grand Prix, but another 11 victories. He was first or second every time he finished, and he didn't finish one race because it was a bizarre mechanical that happened in Bruneau. That is... That's an amazing record, an amazing record. And then including that Philip Island 15.2, where, as I've said before, you little devil, all of the other victories, you could have <laughs> gone quicker. Yeah.
2: <laughs> you could have gone quicker. I mean, in, in in 2019, when Mark did basically the same season, except his one retirement was actually his fault, not mechanical, and I was looking at that season, and without really an encyclopedic knowledge of what the, the previous results were and how previous seasons went on, I was like, well, this must be like the best since the Agostini era, when Agostini was the sole factory rider and winning by 10 hours every weekend. And I look, and I see the, the Rossi season. That's basically exactly as good. I'm like... Pfft. Because the Marcus season felt felt oppressive, what he was doing. And I, I can only imagine that with Rossi, it maybe even felt more oppressive. And there's certainly, I, I think, there's a whole generation of MotoGP champions that weren't because of him. But we'll obviously, we'll mm-hmm. get to that. You know, we, we we'd come from the, you know, Roberts
0: had won having landed in Europe and then just took the championship straight away just like that uh, you know, you, you'd have your, your Lawsons, you'd have your, they're a completely different character. Your gardeners, there was the, the if I could say this and you'll understand it, you know, the angry victory and then I'm going to just ride that Suzuka race with my injuries and I'm going to win the championship. Uh, it was through sheer will. Um, Kevin Schwantz, that was really maybe the beginning of that showmanship, the, the fun that he'd have on the bike when he'd We'd, we'd watch it with Murray Walker on the BBC it was the only chance that we had in the UK at least of watching a a, a, a Grand Prix motorcycle race at all in the in the early 90s and, and it was just another level of sportsman fun it's that kind of Usain Bolt thing that fun element rather than I'm just a sportsman and I'm going to get lots of medals I'm struggling to think of other sports there will be other sportsmen out there that have just got that that, you know, Is there a bit of Cantona there, that, that strange element that was just not, not just a footballer? There's definitely,
1: there's a certain group of athletes who have become breakout stars out of their own sports. And he's one of them. He's there with Michael Jordan. He's there with Tiger Woods. He's there with uh, the Williams sisters, I guess, from a tennis perspective. He is that level of, of breakthrough. Um, you know, people who people who know nothing about what I do for a living don't understand when I tell them I work in MotoGP, and then I tell them it's the one with Valentino Rossi, and they get it. And you know, that that will continue for a long, long time.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, arguably, it's sort of also it's something that's a bit on the retreat because in in Valentino's time, when he would be coming up, there would not be the extensive PR training that every every young prospect undergoes, and uh, I can't think of a it was like we obviously all like Carteraro, banyaya, Mir but it's hard to imagine them carrying themselves the same way because there's the the increased overall level of full professionalism. I'm not saying that Rossi wasn't professional. he obviously was insanely professional but that whole just I think the the overall approach has changed so much that, the average level is different, how people how seriously people take themselves and that's why it it's hard for someone to be like Rossi in this current environment. Even
1: even now looking at all the other guys in the grid, he he is still head and shoulders the best PR that there is he, he runs his own PR machine. He doesn't need a press officer to control how he says things or what he says. He just I think it's instinct. He knows what to say. He knows how far to push things. He knows what subjects to talk about. He's an expert at deflecting away from the subjects he doesn't want to talk about. And uh, I, I genuinely, I don't think that's a product. I don't think that's a product of any PR training, yeah. nor do I think it's a product of not having any PR training. I think it's just his personality. Yeah. And, and that is what drove the success off the bike as well as on it
2: yeah you can you can tell in in the in the current sessions when there's topics that he maybe doesn't want to go too too far into because he's still he'll still give an answer that's usable yeah. and it's still reasonably eloquent he doesn't really answer short but when he's giving you something he he knows it and that's yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: he knows which way is up and which way is down and the correct way uh in motorsport. I have an expression. He just gets it. He knows what's right. He's not some drifter that's going to come in and, and and drift out again in, in 10 years' time. He just knows what's correct and what what's fever, what's cool, what's cool about motorsport. Valentino Rossi was a darling of the spectators, a darling of the fans, and he was bringing in more and more fans from all around the globe. But on track, there was hate, there was dislike for certain riders and the first one that he took a dislike to was Max Biaggi. Biaggi was already winning 3 250cc world championships with Aprilia and then he's fourth in 1997 with a Marlboro Honda. At this point the pair of them were really battling for headlines on the back and indeed the front of the italian newspapers biaggi the perfectly groomed the perfect mustache and the beard shaved perfectly every day uh from rome uh whereas valentino was all a bit oh well we'll turn up and we'll just chuck some leathers on and win the race and we'll all go to the pub and get smashed in the evening it literally was that far apart to that 180 degree degree um Edging them off, edging uh, Biaggi off the track at Suzuka, giving him the bird through the first corner at Suzuka on an NSR 500. That was the beginning of it before Biaggi uh, was on to, um, to other battles. Was that how you remember it first, Simon? Yeah. Um, the, the, the Rossi-Biaggi rivalry was inevitable
1: because they're so, so incredibly dissimilar, yet they're both Italian. Uh, to me that, that that would just it had to happen those two guys were always going to hate each other because of the just the huge difference in the personality how like you say how perfect max was how perfectly groomed he was how perfectly presented he was and then you've got this daft hippie from the beach that just rocks up and says stupid stuff and and gets away with you know being scruffy and untidy and yeah I think it it, it when you look back at the two how different they were it it was completely inevitable that it was gonna end the way it did but it's strange in that they hated each other at the time but it's quite nice to see that they don't hate each other anymore and i think that says a lot about what we saw on track it was it it all came from hard racing and it wasn't ever unfair hard racing it was just real hard racing and um, I think that's let bygones be get bygones because at the end of the day, the two they were just two guys trying to win championships from the same country, and and these things happen. It it gets like that sometimes. Plus, it was in you know it started in the age of five hundreds where bikes were aggressive and hard to ride, and there was no rider aids and everything was a bit more cut and thrust, push and shove than it is now. Yeah, I I think that like I say that that rivalry, if I was to describe it in a word, was inevitable. But um, it made for good entertaining, entertainment, because it was it was the last great rivalry before PR took over.
0: Well, let,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. There's hmm. never been a rivalry since that's actually
0: descended into fisticuffs. True, which we're gonna touch on, <laughs> Val.
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which we're not. We're not encouraging, by the way. I, I should say. Um, but yeah, I, I think what you said there gets to the bottom of why so many of these rivalries are enjoyable especially in hindsight it's certainly it's true with most most of rossi's rivalries is that the ill feeling subsides once the racing is over or even even while the racing is still goes on i don't i don't think there's huge ill feeling between him and stoner or him and lorenzo anymore or anything of the sort uh i think Former band members of a band that split mm-hmm. up tend to hate each other a lot more than former blood rivals in sports, and I think that's certainly part of it in in our sport. Just you know, but it's also the the Biaggi thing as an outsider looking at it, a bit un- one sided, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Biaggi didn't really come that close to to beating Rossi over a full season at any sort of point, did he?
1: Which goes back to the the Bella two thousand and three. Rossi was toying with him. It was a cat and a mouse. And, and it went on after Biaggi kind of trailed away a little bit and, and Sete Zhiberna became the rival. It was the same thing. It was, it was, Rossi, I think, was so fast that he needed something to entertain himself and to entertain the rest of us. And that was, you know, causing perhaps unnecessary drama with these mm-hmm.
0: guys. I, you know, maybe it was the biggest rivalry because. The, they could understand the very last tenth of a percent of nuance in the language
2: that is that is a very
0: good point it's just i call it the last five percent but actually with those two it was the slang the 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 idiosyncrasies of the difference between a roman dialect and a and a rimini-esque dialect whatever they've got over there on the east coast adriatic so it, you, you cannot hide behind lost in translation.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and the, the extra caution goes away that is naturally there when you're self-translating, when you're adapting your original Italian thought into English. You're, you're going to be a little bit careful with the edges so as not to cause an unnecessary fuss. But if you're causing a fuss in your native language, it's, a, it's an intended fuss. You're, you're doing it. <laughs>
0: <So>. <laughs> uh, he and Valentino were at Bruneau two-stroke days so it was 2001 and it was a proper nothing between them and it was the 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 first left behind the pits yeah, yeah the first left first chicane essentially and a lot of people go down there as you know and max fell off just drifted off the front and down he went, and Valentino won the race by a country mile, and um, we were in, a, we were in a, some kind of bar in the evening, and there was a swimming pool. A bar in Brno. A bar in Brno, Simon. Never. You'd never a thunk it, would you? <laughs> and um, I might have told you this, a, a, a soggy arm came over my shoulder, and it was him, and he was just looking at me going, right, you're coming in the pool? And I, I, There was no words. I just said, give me a moment. Let me take my shoes off. And in we went and whatever, and it was just a great fight. But that encapsulated a lot for me of, I was going to beat him, but he fell off, so sod him. you know, And all of the language you can think of in your mind, it was just, he came away with nothing and I came away with 25. I really am getting on top of this bloke. And the hate was was quite intense at the time. It really was very it wasn't very good. And 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 you touched on it a minute ago. How good it is that actually they they shaken hands. Biaggi's around the paddock at the moment as a team manager, and I think that's that's good. You can't dismiss Biaggi as a complete. Oh well, he he's just a nobody because some of the races that I saw that he won holy smoke, goody rider, bloody motorcycle.
2: No, I mean, no no dismissal necessary. I Honestly, am of the opinion that everybody who's made it to the top level is a super, super, superstar. I, I'm always sort of erring on the side of really being appreciative of all the top level guys, even if they're there for like one or two races. But obviously, being repeatedly beaten by... Somebody who most consider the greatest Grand Prix Grand Prix rider in history, no shame in that. But you know there can there can only be one, and often when you're the second or the third, in in some eras that's okay. In other eras, you really miss out on some silverware.
0: Uh, and Valentino, you know, he left the Honda as we know, and he went to uh, he went to to the to the Yamaha in two thousand and four. Let me reiterate this. The season before Valentino was on a Yamaha, Yamaha had had one podium with a third position. He turns up, wins the first race and the championship. I mean, (laughs) the more you look back on it, the more you go, holy smoke, how did he do that? Answer, 15.2 seconds the October before at Phillip Island, really, I suppose, Simon. Yeah, and and for
1: me, that is... The ultimate moment of Valentino Rossi's career, if I have to pick one moment it's sitting at the side of the track alone and Velcom crying his eyes out with the M1, that, that first win and um, to do what he did with that bike just showed how I think how bored he was at Honda and I know there's all sorts of reasons for why he left Honda and not being happy with them and they wouldn't give him things that he wanted, and they're a difficult team to work for, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But genuinely, I think the guy was bored. I think he wanted a challenge. He found the challenge, and and look how it ended. You know, it the like I say, the one of the most incredible sporting memories I've ever seen.
0: That win was just. I can't think of anything comparable. I remember. In any sport. Sorry, I remember looking across to my right hand side to Julian going, he's going to do this. We'd, we'd do that kind of look in each other's eyes a couple of times a year that something really was going to happen. But of course, this was actually the time in our time commentating on motorcycles. Holy moly, he's going to do it. And he did. Um, and then went on and on and on and on and kept winning and kept winning and kept winning. Um, he Just finishing Viaggi. the other little one-liner was the fight that you touched on between the two of them, which was Barcelona 2001. I'd actually said to Mamola after the race, oh, well, you know, stop going on about this hoo-ha between Valentino and and, and, and Max. It's it's all a bit overblown by the press. <laughs> and Mamola flicked his mic on and he said something like, well, you should have heard what I just heard. And I went, what? And he said, they've just had a fight on the stairs up to the podium or the press conference or wherever it was. And Max, oh, well, uh, Paco Latore, who was doing the post-race interviews in those days on behalf of Dawner, he said, "Uh, Max, you you seem to have a little bit of blood on your nose. Oh, a mosquito bit me. (laughs) And they had a bloody fight at the bottom of the stairs.
1: I know someone that was standing at the back of the press conference room with Randy, and Valentino came in, looked for a friendly face, saw Randy, went straight over and went, Randy, Randy, I hate him, I hate him.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, can you imagine if that was on camera? Uh, Yeah, I don't want to sound all 21st century, and it's all about the show, but yeah, you can hear it in uh, one of Mark Neal's documentaries, Faster. You can hear the kerfuffle and the shouting of the security guards piling in to try and stop it, but ah, you can't keep two dogs away like that. You need them <laughs> on a big leash, don't you? Um, and then, and then, of course, we drifted into the four-stroke era, as we've touched on. But then the the out era, as I call it, out, completely different again from Max. Very well educated, Swiss finishing school, uh, Baltaco family, not short of a couple of dollars. Uh, he carried himself very well. You can say all of that upbringing about him, but holy smoke, could he ride a motorcycle, and couldn't he ride it well? And he came out of some races as the victor early on in two thousand five, off the top of my head, leading the championship. And you were either in the Sete camp or you're in the Valentino camp, and it was—I was—I admit I was drifting into both camps because. I got on with Seté. There was something about him. He was a a lot more approachable. He had less of an entourage around him. Uh, I knew his manager well, still do. And uh, the English... We just connected, and it was good TV because it was a battle rather than a rout. And then it all came to a grinding halt when when the grid-sweeping incident at Qatar in 2004, the night before... There was a problem in qualifying and for Valentino and his crew went out and they swept the grid. They got a scooter. They did a burnout to put some rubber on the brand new tarmac to give Valentino a little bit of grip for the day after. It was caught on camera, went to the stewards. They put Valentino to the back of the grid. Sete was at the front. It was an open goal for Sete that he took in race on, on the race with Colin, his teammate in second place. And Valentino battling through from the back of the grid, got up to. Fourth, fourth position or so and fell off and took a chunk out of his finger. He said to Paolo Beltramo, Italian TV pit reporter, looks like Julian, you may remember. He said, uh, oh, but this will be the last victory that Sete ever takes. And I remember being in the hotel room going, did he really say that? That's No, he, he's, he's overstepped the mark. This is out of order. You cannot predict the future like that. He was right. The Valentino Rossi curse. How did he
1: do that? I, I, I genuinely I think it goes back to what we've said all along. It was cat and mouse, he was toying with them, and after that the
0: toying stopped, and he just never gave him the chance again. And when it was about to be a victory for Sete, which was Hereth the year after 05, Valentino <laughs> was coming into that last corner going, Well, I can't let him win. <laughs> Exactly, And uh, and then Sete tried to turn in. He went into the gravel. Bottles were being thrown from the grandstand, literally as Valentino crossed the line in front of our commentary position. There was a real standoff bullfighting chest-pumping incident in in Parc Ferme. I think the grace of Sete was quite apparent that day that there wasn't fisticuffs in Parc Ferme. But I just wish Sete would have done just something a little bit more than posturing like a bullfighter. Easy for me to say. Sete did know how to just count to 10. But that was a big moment. That was a big moment. And then, of course, fingers got pointed at race control. Well, why isn't he penalized? Oh, well, nothing happened. Uh, How did that sit with you? Uh, I I remember just being blown away by it. I remember watching
1: that and just be like, "What on earth is like? What is happening? This doesn't happen in GP. Um, because it it was completely apparent that that Rossi just decided he wasn't going to win. He he just he made the decision that if he wasn't going to win the race, neither is Seti. And if it had ended with both of them in the gravel, that would have been a happier outcome than if than if Seti had crossed the line first. <laughs> that, oh that is genuinely, <laughs> I think, what he believed that day. And and that's you know, it, it's it's not often that we've seen Valentino Rossi ride angry. But I think maybe on that day, that was the temper. And and there is a temper, you know, you, you, every racer has a temper, and every so often it comes out. But that, that, I think, is
0: one of the very, very few times we've maybe seen him come close to losing control. We do have to remind ourselves why they were that close into the last corner. Valentino actually had quite a big lead going into the last lap, and it was at the hairpin at the end of the back straight, dry sack, one of the sherry houses in Hereth, it was called. Um, and I remember the commentary. It was I said something like... I, you know, you look at the TV screen and you go, hang on a minute, he's going a bit deep there. And I said, Ross, and the front was ducking on the brakes and the suspension was kicking up. I said, Ross is looking ragged. Ross is looking ragged and he's deep and he's over wide and Sete was alongside and Julian just lit up. I'll never forget it. He just completely elevated himself off the ground because all of a sudden we had a race over the last half a lap. Randy was shouting down the mic at that quick right behind the pits. He's lost the front. He's lost the front. He was... He was annoyed with himself because he had the race won and he screwed it up with half a lap to go to let Seté within shooting distance. And then, of course, Seté... And I, oh, no, what do I do now? And then it was the last corner and off you go. Mm, yeah, difficult, difficult. Uh, but it was quite something. How do you see... I, I read somewhere the other day that, oh, well, one of his major rivals was Marco Melandri. I thought... Was yeah. he? He wasn't in my book. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. He was, he was another
1: Italian that shared a bit of track with him and that was it. That was never a rival because Marco just wasn't fast enough. He he just wasn't, you know, he wasn't consistently, he was fast enough on the day and there were some great races between the two of them but it was never, uh, you know. Rossi's, Rossi's rivals are traditionally measured in terms of people who pushed him for championships across multiple seasons and, and Marco didn't even do that for one season. So The Casey
0: hate, that was never gonna work. That was never gonna work.
1: It's it's another case of two completely different personalities, isn't it? Just just complete Casey is so straight-laced, he was at the time so uptight. Um he's not now he's done the traditional racer relaxing now that he's retired thing, but at the time he was just he he always looked tense. And and that just you know, Rossi's laid-back attitude was just the direct opposite of that, and they were always going to rub each other up the, the wrong way.
0: The whole Marquez thing, Argentina, and Malaysia, you touched on it earlier, Val. Do you think that they have made up-ish at the moment? Uh, what do you think first, Val?
2: No. I don't think they have a, much of a relationship to speak with, and there's... I mean, you can do the public show of a friendship all you want, but when I think for as long as Valentino Rossi continues to believe that his eighth MotoGP title or his tenth Grand Prix title, whatever, was stolen from him by Mark, not sure there can be a reconciliation anytime soon. And Rossi clearly still does believe that because he he basically brings it up at every at every opportunity he can. But it's it's also just they didn't. This is a weird thing to say. They didn't share that much, if that makes sense. They didn't share as much as Lorenzo, as much as as much as much Rossi and Lorenzo, as much as Rossi and Biaggi, as much as Rossi and Stoner. They were in very different positions in their careers, always. Uh, they never fought for, for a title like directly, I don't think. I mean, 2016 is the closest, I believe, and it, that was over with three races to go when Rossi chucked it at Mategi, I believe. Um... And by the time the... So the biggest post... Sabang is, a whole, of course, a whole different story. And it's a title fight that Marquez both was and wasn't part of. So it's sort of a hard one to say. And at the start of that season, actually were watching Argentina 2015, Rossi kind of took him out. And not a lot is said about that because of what happened later, which is fair enough. Uh, but I think the big, huge flashpoint which caused Rossi to say that Marquez was creating... Uh, was Was destroying the sport was Argentina twenty eighteen. And the reason that happened was the same reason that you just spoke about with um Rossi and Sete at, at Jerez. Uh, Marquez was on a different planet that day. He he could have done whatever. He didn't like it was it was not a, a crash of rivalry, it was a crash of disrespect when when Mark went into him in twenty eighteen. It was a crash of I need to gain position. I am so much quicker than you, then you just have to get out of my way. I am not racing you. I think there was a very similar crash with Aleish too, and that's why Mark has got to... I think Mark has got a, a heavy penalty in the end. But he was... I think that disrespect will have stung more than any genuine rivalry because it was like, get out of the way, you're not on my level. Which, by the way, the rest of the season, obviously, nobody was at Mark's level. Nobody was at Mark's level for those years. So he... He's also a different character, so it's easy to see how they didn't get along. But he's—he's he's maybe in, in in a weird way. He has more in common with Rossi than almost any of the other guys: Biaggi, Jabrinal, Lorenzo, uh, Mark. There is also this sort of laid-back assassin thing about him. He's laid back in a different way, but it—he is. he never looks very phased. It's it's hard to say. There's sort of maybe his. Laid backness comes through in a very different way, but this is what they have in common: they're smiling assassins, and they're they're people who view themselves as as being so much clearer of their rivals, and that sometimes come through in how they they approach the the race. For
1: me, the, there's one huge
2: difference between
1: Marquez and all the other rivals. That means that relationship is that relationship will never repair. We're not going to see photographs in ten years' time of them swapping helmets. And it's because Rossi is someone who loves motorbike racing. He loves hard racing. And all of those other rivalries were were, were stemmed from hard racing. They stemmed from the thing in Mizano or the thing at uh, Suzuka with Biagi or Laguna Seca against Casey or Ambition Worldways Talent with Casey. The Marquez thing, the real, real reason for the dislike isn't because of something that happened on track, it's because of something that happened in a courtroom in Switzerland. It went beyond the racing, and it went to a court case, it went to court of arbitration for sport, the grid penalty, all of that. And I think that that makes it different. Plus, none of the rest ever took something from Rossi that he really, really wanted. And Mark took away his 10th title in his head. I, and I think for, for those reasons. Uh, and... They, and for me, they, they, they are similar personalities, but Marquez almost modelled himself on Rossi. Rossi was his hero, looking up to him. Um, you know, there, there's pictures, there's an interview on YouTube from a, a Spanish documentary from like the year Marquez won his Moto2 title. And he still has his Valentino Rossi posters in his bedroom wall. Oh, you know, this is like two months before they started racing against each other. So um I think the fact that Rossi feels like Marquez stole something from him and the fact that Marquez feels like his hero betrayed him means that that, that, that it's just gone. That relationship is gone.
2: Marquez is the T one thousand to the original Terminator of Valentino oh, yeah. Rossi, is how I would put it. Are you
1: saying he he's
2: formed of liquid yeah. metal? He's kinda of, he's he's scarier. And I mean it that explain the, his crashes. He's scarier, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. He is <laughs> Yeah. more of an assassin and less smiley yeah. yeah that's true
0: valentino had his injuries 2010 at michello um uh, was he was transported away from the tuscan valley in a yellow helicopter um we he even had a laugh when he was in hospital the next day The morphine is good, he said. Um, But he came back that season and won at Malaysia, and that was a bigger victory than many people remember because there was a title battle going on behind him that the TV was kind of focused on. But for him to win, you look at his celebrations that day, that was a massive, massive win. Uh,
1: To make another, to bring Marquez back into it, um, I think that Rossi's Mugello 2010 crash was the equivalent of Marquez's Hereth 2020 crash, in that it was the day that the dominance ended. That that was the end of the beginning of the end of Valentino Rossi's career. Obviously, it went on another ten seasons and he still came back and won again. And there was the Ducati experiment and there was so much still to tell of his story, but he he never quite recovered from that incident. He never quite came back. And I think it it, it it there's a lot of comparisons to the Marquez crash which is why I bring it up because it happened as the guard was changing in the sport and a crop of new talent were starting to emerge um it it came as he was starting to become the old man of the class i think they were both a similar age when it happened that sort of 28 29 mark um and it it, it will always be a question mark of what if if he hadn't broken his leg that day, would he have won the twenty ten title? He'd have had a fair crack at it. Um, what would that have meant for the time of Ducati? Would it have made him you know more fired up, fitter, more willing to listen to Ducati's engineers in developing the bike instead of trying to build a Yamaha in Bologna? Who knows? Um, but that that for me along with. Welcome 2004. That is the second day that defines his entire career.
2: What if so? What if he hurt himself but didn't go to Ducati? How good would his chances have been at 2011 2012? That's the that's the bit I really want to want to know. That's the one what if that I think is really big for me.
1: I, I don't know how many titles he would have won, but I think that uh Giacomo Agostini's record of wins would have fallen.
2: Yeah, for sure.
0: No doubt. But that also... No doubt. doubt. Spoke to Lynn Lynn Jarvis about this the other day and he just said there was no way he was going to stay in the same garage as as Jorge Lorenzo. It doesn't matter. He didn't say this, but it was almost a kind of... It doesn't matter if he was going to go and ride the thing at the back. He was not going to ride the thing next to number 99. And curiosity killed the cat. I know why he went to Ducati. I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, If there was a... Triumph MotoGP team Simon and Cal Crutchlow had the option to do it as a reigning he would go and do it wouldn't he? You you have to scratch that itch. They had only won the championship uh, in 07, and this was a conversation that was happening in 2010. So the the, the thought is still there that you might be able to add. Oh, I'm a better rider than Stoner, so I'll make it happen. He knew. The first time he came into the garage after the first test that he did on it in Valencia 2010, it was over. He just knew, I can't do this. I can't do this. He was also injured. He was also had a sh- another shoulder injury that he'd done in an enduro bike uh, accident. And it was lingering, lingering, lingering. Uh, engineers have told me from Ducati exactly how bad it was, but it, it, it wasn't pretty. They kept it from us at the time. The whole thing... Uh, was a mess uh, with hindsight, but they had to try it. They had to try it. Um, you know, I get that. I get that. Um, so, therefore, vis-a-vis, do you think he would have won another title had he yeah. not gone to Ducati? Uh,
2: probably. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's that's just. It's a really difficult hypothetical. <laughs> I, I I
1: think he would, and I'm not saying he necessarily would have won 2011 or 2012. But I think given how close he was when he came back yeah. to Yamaha on a bike that he'd been absent from from two years, if he'd kept that Yamaha momentum all the way through, then,
0: then yeah, 13, 14, 15 might have been a different story. He would, of course, been battling against Casey on a Honda in 11 and 12. Casey left at the end of 12. Then Mark came in. So, ew, whoa, that would have been
2: fun, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, I yeah. think 2011 had the question because Casey... Just yeah. Just much better than everyone. And twenty twelve I think Casey was a bit hurt and not, not entirely happy, just generally. So the
1: ankle problem, the yeah, the car I think, I think, it turned
2: out. I think twenty twelve is one you can eye yeah. really and or twenty fifteen with the benefit of more Yamaha yeah. experience. Yeah. So it's a maybe. But it's also it it, it, it touches on a, a very interesting bit of Rossi of Rossi history is that he's one of those greats who has dominated each of his titles, but every title, like proper title race that he went into that was one-on-one, very close to the final race, all of those he lost. So there were two, two title rivalries where he went into the final race leading the championship, but still with a chance to lose it, lost it both times.
0: But Valentino's celebrations have been arguably his biggest trademark. Nobody had done celebrations like that until he did them. Uh, the, The chicken outfit on the back of a 250 at Catalunya Dennis Noyes said some lines, some one-liners as he was going around, and it just got me. It's a bit like being in an exam classroom when you're supposed to be quiet and you're supposed to not giggle. It's even worse and it's even funnier. Um, And I got the giggles and I was hoarse for the 500 race following. Uh, The toilet didn't really do it for me. I was a bit, uh, but the thing that I really liked... (laughs) was being stopped by the police just as he crossed the line at Bugello on the Repsol Honda V5, stopped by um, uh, uh, the, 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 his, his fan club, the big lollipop or the Municipali. I didn't know what Municipali were, but they're the police of the of the cities because there are about seven police in Italy. I kid you not. And he got a speeding ticket and then the speeding ticket, of course, was already over at Gazzetta della Sport the next day. I just thought that was brilliant, but Everybody's got a different choice.
2: Um, he should have made it a, a franchise celebration. So after the speeding ticket, he should have made like a courtroom celebration, <laughs> then a jail celebration, <laughs> <and> <laughs> coming out of the jail celebration,
0: <laughs>
2: trying to find a job. Well, he actually
1: did the he prison. Did, oh he actually did the prison celebration, didn't he? At uh, Bruno breaking
0: rocks, he, he did the
1: ball See, and chain thing.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. What were your favourites?
1: Do you know? Genuinely, my my favourite. Um, wasn't one of the orchestrated ones. My favorite Rossi celebration, I think, was uh Herath 2020, the last podium, when he he celebrated in front of empty grandstands as if there was 100,000 people in them and got up on the fence and cheered bowed to the crowd that weren't there and that cuz it was spontaneous and that's old school Rossi showmanship. There was no planning, there was no expectation that he was going to be in the podium. There was no way of knowing it was going to be the last podium. But he did it in just typical Rossi style. like everyone else who won a race in 2020 rode around in the slow and down lap over to the TV cameras. Valentina Rossi' standing on the tire wall next to the famous Portaloo taking a bow as if there was thousands of people screaming his name. No one else would even have thought to do that, and no one else would have been cool enough to get away with doing it, because everyone else that had tried to do that would have looked like a dick and he doesn't cuz he's Valentino Rossi cuz he's VI exactly yeah
2: yeah I'm, I'm with simon i the planned ones are fine especially when you're winning as much as rossi you really need to, to mix it up and do some some scripted stuff but yeah, the point of celebrations that they're supposed to be spontaneous and uh, a a real genuine reflection of emotion i don't even really like when people do cool down lap stuff i just i just want them to get straight into park for me and go go nuts with their mechanics that's that's basically always my favorite part yeah yeah like mark did at mizano that was pretty cool this year uh
0: valentina didn't celebrate in 2006 because Nicky hayden took the victory at valencia but he took it so well because well Nicky won it and no one disliked Nicky uh Forevermore for a time eternal. Um there was a plan for a celebration, but of course they had to ferry that away with about three laps to go. They'd moved the local vicar from Tavulia, they'd moved the altar out of the church, they brought it down in a van um, to do some ecclesiastical celebration. I don't know what it was, but they had to scoop him back into the van and drive him all the way back to Tavulier it wasn't to be. So there were celebrations that didn't happen. But that um, was that
2: was the one that got away. That's I think that's the tenth title that like he's he used twenty fifteen as I I disagree with like just looking at the Hayden season, that was the season where I think he he was quicker. It just it happens sometimes you're quicker but you don't win. In twenty fifteen I think Jorge Lorenzo was quicker. I don't think that was particularly particularly debatable so I would feel less hard done by by that but obviously he liked Lorenzo less than everybody liked Hayden so that that didn't help <laughs> yeah
1: yeah but for yeah for me 2006 is the title that Rossi threw away he can
0: blame whoa, no whoa, whoa, one else oh yes for he can he can blame himself. Yamaha cuz he had two engine failures when he was at the yeah, front
1: yeah he can but it
0: but it came down to the lane and he crashed. And then when it came down to the line, he crashed. Granted. Purpose of exercise, score the most amount of points over this season. Um, yeah, but yeah, yeah. They, they they, were rubbish qualifiers. They turned the wick up on the engine at Le Mans and it blew up. They did the same at Laguna and it blew up at the top of the hill. Boom. 45 points gone. Just like that. Um, and he lost it by eight, was it? Six. Can't remember. Um, close. So It was very close, yeah. Yes, it was. Uh, it was. It was a close one. Um, Jerry Burgess was an architect of Valentino in the big class. He was uh, Wayne Gardner's chief uh, crew chief. Then Mix McDuan, won those five titles with Mick, Won with WG. Then turned it around for Valentino right from the word go. Um, the removal was a little harsh. Unfortunately, it was a, a press conference that was made in the Yamaha hospitality. And you know what it's like as journalists when the press conference finishes, there's a breakaway and the journalists then huddle around somebody. And I was stood with Mark Neal. who was the director of all the Faster stuff. And, he, and I said, oh my goodness me, Mark, look at that. And he said, what? I said, Valentino's over there on the left-hand side. Not one single journalist has gone to speak to him. And at Jerry Burgess on the right-hand side, it was 10 people deep. I kid you not. And I just said, I've never seen that before. There was a swing of the press office, as I like to call it, as you know, Simon Neville. of, hang on a minute, I think we need to give this guy the credit, just for a minute. It was very rare that you didn't see somebody crowding around him, but that was one of those moments. Um, What other kind of highlights have you got? What other kind of bizarre memories of debriefs, digital debriefs in the modern era, airports, whatever?
1: I, so the one of the big takeaways um, that I'll always have from Valentino is how how the Valentino Rossi that came across on TV is Valentino Rossi. He is that friendly, chatty, funny guy that, that will talk and talk and talk. Uh, loves talking about motorbike racing. And every interview I ever did with him uh, invariably upset his schedule for the entire day. And not because we'd run over. We would do our 15-minute interview slot. And then afterwards, he'd want to have a conversation about who was going to do what at the TT next week or what was going on in the final round of the British Superbike Championship or what did I know about this news from World Superbikes or, um, you know, w- w- I have talked about every road race in Ireland with Valentino Rossi because he knew what was going on at the mall. You know, he um he calls Mac- John McGuinness, he calls John because... John is quite, without resorting to stereotypes, northern and sweary. He calls John McFuck, <laughs> and, you know, but he has this—he has a relationship with John McGinnis. They talk, they text, they they WhatsApp each other, um, because he cares about what's going on at TT. Um, he he just can't get enough of racing, and it really it plays into that you know that attitude of just a guy that loves what he's doing. And and there's like an effortless cool that comes with that. Um, we we spent uh, sort of two weeks locked in a hotel in Qatar this year, at the start of the season. Whenever we were still in that weird bubble of of travel and stuff, he was in my hotel. And you'd go to you'd go to breakfast in the morning, and there was a couple of other MotoGP riders. The Suzuki guys were in my hotel, and they'd turn up in their team uniform, ready to go to the track, looking you know spiffy and tidy. And Valentino Rossi would appear in flip-flops and a Batman t-shirt. <laughs> and, you know, looking a little bit hungover because there was six of them at the table for dinner last night and two, three empty bottles of wine on the table at the end. Because, you know, they'd had a few beers or a few bottles of wine because that's what you do. What you do. Yeah. And and that, you know, yeah. I, I love that attitude about him. I love that that came across in all the interviews we did together Um. And the worst thing about Zoom debriefs with Valentino Rossi has genuinely been that someone else controls the clock. Because I've never... If you really wanted to ask him something in a debrief, you just waited until the end and you threw the question out there, even whenever the press officer was saying okay, now we switch to Italian. Because he'd still answer it. He would, yeah. If it's something that was interesting. He he just... He likes that whole side of it. He likes talking to people. And, um, yeah. That, that for me, is the the coolest thing about Valentino Rossi, is that I suppose he's just... A normal bloke below it all.
0: I, I uh, in the last year of Eurosport, doing European coverage before it went to British, British Eurosport in 09. So it was 08. And I'd said at the beginning of the year to, to to Valentino Direct, you know, can you please come to the commentary box? Because it all goes all the way back to Imola, 97. You know, you you were recording our races and can you just come to the commentary box just once? He knew what I was trying to do. You know, it was it was the goodbye. And I very, very gently asked him and and uh, and it was it was Saxon Ring oh eight and the door flung open in the middle of the one, two, five race, and there he was. <laughs> and there he was. Uh, because you may know that commentary box is right by the paddock. It's not over there, yeah. top of a grandstand, yeah, 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 underneath yeah, yeah. a tunnel, it's, it's in it's the paddock. The, the, yeah. And <clears throat> and you know, and in came Valentina, and in came Brevio, and in came Somebody else and somebody else, I can't remember. Uh, Chris Hughes uh, was doing the Bridgestone PR at that time, and he was in there at the same time. Small commentary box, they used to bring us copious amounts of food and beer and gherkins and all sorts of German stuff, and it was, it was a hoot, that place. And uh, I said, you know... Valentino Rossi is joining us and here he is live on air. You know, And I was like, okay. And we had a giggle and he 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 would say, he couldn't say Bradley. So he'd say Bradle. And I'd say, no, that's Bradley. And he'd say, that's what I said. No, you said, I thought, don't get into an argument with him. Don't get into an argument with him. He's Valentino Rossi. And of course we're four corners on and there's been a change of the lead eight times. So it all, it all was fun. Anyway, Brevio about four laps later tapped his watch and pointed at me and tapped his watch again and Valentino caught sight of Brevio tapping his watch like we've got to go and he just threw his hand against uh, Brevio going (laughs) oh shut up and he stayed to the end of the race he stayed to the end of the race and he was talking to this and, and he interrupted us and it was it didn't matter it didn't matter I've I've got a recording of it somewhere Chris Hughes took a load of photos um it was it was brilliant it was brilliant after the race, I got a phone call from somebody at Dorna saying, "Well, you couldn't do that." I said, "Why not?" Well, you're not allowed to do that. I, I literally put the phone down. I literally <laughs> put the phone down, going, "There is nothing to stop me doing it. I thought of it before you guys did, and uh, and that was that." I then had a, I then caught up with somebody at Yamaha the race after, and they said thanks for that. And I said, what? He said, my, my email has melted for, <laughs> since that race for all the other TV companies saying, can he come to our box? Mm-hmm. And I don't think he went to another commentary box ever again. So, I, uh, that was pretty, that was fun day, that. I went to Monza Rally in about
1: 2017 or 2018. And at the end of the day, end of the three days every day in Monza, he does like a, a debrief for whatever Italian TV cameras have turned up and then he does one in English uh, for the journalists that Monster Energy have brought, which is normally like a, a collection of European non motorcycling journalists from, from you know, regional papers, sports papers, things like that. So, uh, and then me, who had turned up on my own bat, but I knew everyone from Monster, so I sort of tagged along with them. So I, I went along to the the debrief for the first day, and he came over and he went, hey, ciao, Tutti, ciao, Tutti. Ah, ciao, Simon, and recognized me. And uh, it turned into a one on one interview. <laughs> With with six other journalists looking on confusedly yeah. as him and I had this conversation. So then the next morning the uh Roberta, the, the head PR for Monster came and said, Look, can you not do that again, please? Uh, today. So I was like, okay, okay. So I went along the next day, I stood at the back. He came over again. I chat through to him, Hi, Simon. And uh the the these journalists who had never met him before asked, you know, why he races with a number 46 and why yellow is his favorite colour and and he answers all the questions completely professionally, and then at the end he goes, Simon, you have questions? <laughs> and we have another quick back and forth. And then the next morning, Roberta from Monster comes back and says, look, today just do whatever the hell you want. Yeah, <laughs> And okay. that's, you know, that, that's, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's but, what I mean as well about, you know, no one told him to do that, but he gets the whole natural pure thing. It just comes to him. It's It's his personality to be chatty and friendly
0: and funny and witty and there are, there are not many people I've come across in the world of two- and four-wheeled motorsport that I've worked in for 30 years now that are always that happy, even when they're really, really down and angry and whatever. You know, uh, having said that, you know, Lewis Hamilton lost a World Championship in a lap at the last race of the Formula One World Championship in 2021. But he didn't shout. He didn't jump up and down he had to go and have a hug with his dad and just count to 10 but in front of the cameras he was nothing but graceful he you know just the same as Felipe Massa was in in Brazil 2008 except it was almost worse for Massa because he won it for 20 seconds and then had it taken away from him I was that Glock you know um so yeah but Lewis is Lewis is in a different way but a same kind of level i think you may know where i'm coming from that grace that he's got even when it's down the mask did slip for valentino that's julian's line he said it on the commentary on the in, in the commentary when they were on the podium at uh, saxon ring valentino lost the race on the last corner to Sete a now and he stood on the podium with a face like thunder the mask had slipped um he because he knew it was his own fault but he that's about the only time I can remember yeah. him in real public being really angry. And because that... even all the other times he had occasion to be angry, it
1: didn't show. He he was still smiling as he was angry. My point entirely.
2: Argentina eighteen. I I'd argue. Argentina eighteen was felt pretty personal. <laughs> yeah, I think. but
1: but even afterwards, he was he was. I remember being at that debrief, and he was yeah. very calculating and he, he wasn't angry he wasn't shouting yeah. and roaring he was very precise in his criticisms he was he was you know it was another master class in in pr how to get your point across without shouting
2: and raving no i did not shout yeah but the words were yeah really, yeah really absolutely harsh. they were they were
0: <laughs> well it's been nothing but fascinating fun for me a massive trip down memory lane i could talk about it uh, all day every day uh but maybe we'll do another one in four or five years' time and other things will pop up in our, in our, in our memory banks. Don't you think? Should we, should, we, should we book that in the diary for 2026, Simon?
1: Maybe we, uh, maybe we need to start uh, sending some, press, some emails to press officers and see if we could
0: just get them along for one of these. Well, one day. It will happen, like, <laughs> yeah. like getting him into a commentary box. Gently, yeah, gently, yeah. it will happen.
2: Uh, it, I mean, there's gonna be cause. It's not like Valentino Rossi's done with MotoGP this year. It's not like it's over. It's it's as unover as it could be. Like even for a, for a guy who's only caught really the back end of his of his career, I still have a lot of Valentino Rossi to experience in MotoGP, both through his new team, obviously, and through just the the enormous impact he's had on on up and coming Italian talent that is currently so crucial in in MotoGP. There's a really, really good chance that a Valentino Rossi protege, like a direct protege, somebody who reveres him and somebody who spent so much time with him, will be champion in 2022. And the fun part about that is I did not name a name because there's at least two candidates.
1: The the (laughs) last two years in a row, a Valentino Rossi direct protege has been the runner up in the championship and has been two different writers.
2: And And they're so good and they weren't sure things. It's not like those are two guys who you could just point out, you say anybody could oversee them, anybody could manage their careers and they'd be fine. They are two guys who have had ups and downs and who've had a very interesting path and who have been aided on that path by Valentino Rossi and now they're both stars and they're both great. And they're both great in ways that are somewhat similar but also very different to to Valentino Rossi.
0: Well, we're going to have to stop this sooner or later, and I think the time is now. But we will continue another day, so do keep in touch with therace.com, news and other podcasts online with our websites. Uh, From Val, from Simon, and myself, Toby, we hope you've enjoyed it, uh, with us talking about a nine-time MotoGP world champion. Once in 125, once in 250, once on a 500. Four times on a 990cc four-stroke. A Honda and a Yamaha, and then twice on an 800cc Yamaha, making it that nine. Valentino Rossi, thank you so much.